In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our text is the reading from Ephesians chapter 4. In our gospel reading, though, we see a picture of Jesus' true priority. A paralyzed man is brought to him, and Jesus does the most important thing first. He looks at the man, and he tells him, your sins are forgiven. If you spent some time thinking about your prayer life, how much of it is spent on asking God for healing for you or for someone that you love? How much is spent on asking the Lord for the physical needs that you need to support this body and this life? I don't want you to hear me saying that it's bad to pray for this stuff. In fact, I think that we should. Jesus does grant this man's prayers to be healed of his paralysis. Jesus does teach us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But we should remember that we have a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think. In other words, sometimes when we pray, we think too small. After all, Jesus reminds us that our Father in heaven already knows what we need. So in light of that, he urges us to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness that all the needs of the body would be added to us. After all, this is why Jesus includes the petitions of hallowing God's name, the coming of his kingdom, and the doing of his will on earth as it is in heaven before he gets to any other petitions in the Lord's Prayer, not to forget the one about daily bread. He tells us to seek his kingdom first before we look for anything else. It's a matter of putting our priorities in the right order. So what's the point of all of that then? Well, by forgiving the paralyzed man his sins before he does anything else, Jesus shows us not only what is more important, but he also shows us that sin is the root cause of everything that afflicts us. Not necessarily that this man committed a certain sin that led to his paralysis, although that is certainly possible. He might have been fooling around and got injured, and that led to his paralysis. That's possible. But we're not told that, so we maybe ought not speculate on that. Instead, we should remember that the Bible teaches us that sin is a general condition that we're born with, a, a congenital disease, if you will, that's passed from one generation to the next. This means that the Christian life should be one of continual repentance and faith, a constant turning away from our sins toward the Christ who makes us righteous by faith in him. And so, using our epistle reading, let's look at how this life really should look on the ground. St. Paul begins by saying, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt 
through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The image here is taking off one kind of outfit and putting on a new one. Isaiah foretells this in his book when he says, We have all of us become unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The thing that always gets me about that line from Isaiah is that it isn't our sins that make us clothed in filthy rags before God, but it's even our righteous deeds. To bring it back to what Paul said, it is our lives that are corrupted even before we act upon our deceitful desires. We have a heart problem. This turns the world's thinking about sin upside down. Sin isn't just our bad actions or words. Sin begins first and foremost in the heart. And what proceeds out of the heart is what defiles a man. The sinful words and deeds, those are just a symptom of the actual problem of the fallen heart. And there's only one cure for that. You must take off the polluted garments of your former manner of life. And you must put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what happened to you at your baptism. In the font, you died a death like Christ, that you would be joined to a resurrection like Christ's. Your life is no longer marked by the corruption of the desires of your heart, but it is now marked by the cross of Jesus. It is now to be lived after the manner of Christ's life. By the power of his word, he renews your spirits and your minds. You are clothed in your baptism in the very righteousness of Jesus. And this means, dear saints, that our lives should look different from those who have not shed the polluted garments of sin and death. And here I have to make an admission to you. We confessed our sins earlier. Well, here I go. There was a time, even in my time as a pastor, when I thought a Christian's life didn't necessarily needed to look all that different from the lives of others who are around us. Of course, that didn't extend to things like going to church and praying and reading God's Word. I, th I thought that we should still do all of those things. But I thought that it was mostly fine for us to live our lives mostly the way others do. Watching the same movies, watching the same television shows, listening to the same music, speaking the same way, dressing the same way. All of those things associated with the outward life. The problem I encountered, though, was, well, reading the New Testament. Especially passages like our epistle reading for today. Even consider Jesus' words of absolution to the woman caught in adultery. When the last of her accusers threw down the stone that he wanted to cast at her and walked away, Jesus looked up at the woman and he told her, 
Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. What am I saying? I'm not saying that we can only listen to Christian music or only watch Christian movies, but I am saying that we should take care in choosing what we consume and how we live our lives. St. Paul gives us some specific instructions on this today. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So he says that we should be, first and foremost, people of the truth. That means that we cannot go along with the silly pronoun game that people want to play. Children must be honest with their parents. We're united in truth because falsehood is what divides us one from another. Now, the next one is hard. I think it's hard for anybody, but we shouldn't go to bed mad. Anger is corrosive to relationships, and the counter agent for that corrosion is the forgiveness of sins. Anger and bitterness, says St. Paul, gives opportunity for the devil to do his work in tearing us apart. Paul's instruction on thievery is helpful for us in understanding the Bible's full teaching about what stealing actually means. We live in a time, for instance, where people don't want to work. You see this on signs at restaurants all the time. Nobody wants to work anymore, so be polite to those who did show up. But we have a bunch of people that want to live on someone else's dime. That marks our society and our world right now. Even though the government sanctions it, the Bible still calls it what it is, and that is stealing. Work is not a result of the fall into sin, but it's baked into the cake of creation. Remember that God put Adam in the garden in order to work it and to keep it, that he was to subdue creation to his will. We should condemn policies that discourage work for able-bodied people because, as the Bible says, it's stealing. But Paul's admonition to put on the new self goes beyond just these specific instructions. These are just a start. So, I want you to consider this morning... What are those things that belong to the former manner of your life? What words do you say when having a beer with your friends that you would not dare to repeat in the Lord's house? What songs would you listen to if you, were, if, if you played them in front of your grandmother? You would be embarrassed if she actually understood the lyrics. What things do you do under the cover of privacy that you would be ashamed for those things to come to light, or even worse yet, how would you react if you were caught doing or saying those things at the return of Jesus? 
One of the things that I have suggested from this pulpit before is to say out loud what you're tempted to do, mostly to yourself, as a way of sort of seeing how absurd temptation is, to sort of mock the devil, to mock your own sinful flesh. But I've recently added to that habit saying this, I'm a Christian, and Christians do not do that. By focusing our eyes and our hearts on Jesus, our hearts and our minds are renewed, cleansed of the pollution of sin that we might be like him, recreated in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness that flows not from within our hearts, but flows only from him. This renewal must begin, though, with the real problem. The real problem of our fallen hearts. So let us therefore go where Jesus gives the forgiveness of sins, the font, the confessional, the altar. For there in those places, Jesus washes our dirty garments and clothes us anew with the royal robes of his righteousness. In Jesus' name. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.